as we continue to work through uh, the book of James. We're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, the book of James, right near the end of the New Testament, just a short little book. We're in the second chapter, looking at verses 1 through 13. This is uh, written by uh, the brother of Jesus, but also uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the very Word of God. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or Sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, before we uh, look at this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that this morning uh, you would uh, screen out everything that distracts and hinders us from knowing you better. Pray that you will surround us by your Spirit, fill us and work in us by your Spirit so we can know you better. Help us, we pray, to perceive the glory of the Lord. Help us to learn to love each other, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Father, create in us, uh, in our midst and uh, in us personally, a desire not to discriminate in ways that you do not yourself. Help us to be aligned with your perceptions and your values. Help us to learn to see others the way that you do. And in seeing them, help us to love them as you do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, the text begins uh, calling uh, the family of God uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ not to show favoritism. Uh, what we're told here, the, the, the translation, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, is fine, sort of adjectival, um, but it's not quite that clear, actually. As The text actually says you know, that you are a believer in sort of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so, whether that means He's the glorious Lord, or more literally, the Lord of glory, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a translation decision. But probably, the way that you're to look at this is from the very beginning, you're being reminded, look, you are the family of God, and the one that you believe in, the one that you trust in, is the one who actually is sort of the Lord of glory, whose glory is revealed in, in climactic special ways uh, in the Old Testament revelation. So, for example... You would think of uh, the glory cloud of God, the Shekinah glory uh, that fills the tabernacle at the end of Exodus 40 so that the priest can't even minister inside of it because the whole thing is overflowing with the holy character of God. The, the manifestation of the presence of the glory of the Lord. Uh, you might think of the tremendous revelation of God that Isaiah has in the vision in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, you, you might think at this point in history, uh, when James is writing of Luke, uh, in Luke's gospel, where uh, the message of Gabriel is that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That word for overshadow, a very rare word, uh, used of the glory overshadowing the tabernacle in Exodus 40. There, there's a literary echo there, that the womb of the virgin is the holy of holies. That's where God's glory is now manifest, because God's glory is manifest in Jesus Christ, inside of, of the body of this person who is who's sort of an irrelevant little girl in, in a cultural backwater in Nazareth. But that's where God is. That's where God's glory is. The same way that when the shepherds are out in their fields watching over their flocks by night, you know, an angel appears and the glory of the Lord shines around them. That glory is now sanctifying a farmer's field. It's not the temple, it's the farm which is holy because holiness is where the glory of God is made manifest and revealed. And so who, where do we find glory? Who is the one who actually shows us the glory of God? Well, James reminds us it's Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of glory. Uh, there is absolutely no one, there is nothing in this world which can compare in the slightest way to the glory of the Lord. Now, the reason I think that James wants you to, to remember that is because there's a contrast now between the tremendous glory of the Lord and showing favoritism to human beings. There's a sense which he wants you to, to remember. What is the glory of people compared to the glory of God? What is the glory of individual people? What, what does their fame amount to? What does their money amount to? You know, what does their uh, physical appearance amount to? What do their accomplishments amount to compared to Jesus? He is the Lord of glory. That's where you find God's glory. And now we're going to start assessing each other. We're going to be dividing each other up into classes and categories, some of which we're going to rate more highly than others. But universally, when we stop comparing ourselves sort of horizontally, we start comparing ourselves vertically to Jesus, we start comparing other people to Jesus, all of a sudden favoritism becomes a lot more 
difficult. Um, also, just so you know, interestingly enough, all kinds of psychological studies have been done, which indicates that the average person always rates themselves as better than average in all kinds of ways, uh, which is statistically impossible, right? I mean, we can't all be better drivers than average, even though everyone sort of self-reports that they are, you know, d- despite accidents and tickets. You know, there's, there's no sort of rationale. There's people always over-report their morality. Everyone thinks that they're better than the average person morally and all of the rest. There are these psychological quirks. So, so we are actually horrific when it comes to self-analysis and judging other people anyway. We're we're just bad at it. And so what we need to do is we need to stop trying to do that, stop trying to judge other people and categorize and classify other people, and just sort of get an idea of who are we, what are human beings in perspective in comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ? Who are we in reference to Him? Well, if we start thinking about Jesus, if we start thinking about His glory, then we're not going to be overly impressed with human glory and prestige, with all the metrics and ways that we use to calculate that. Now, the word for, when we translate this as do not show favoritism, it's literally do not receive the face. Uh, What that means is, depending on the face of the person, you treat them differently. Depending on who they are and their appearance, you treat them differently. You receive the externals. You receive the face, the outwardness. And so we're being told as believers in the glorious Lord, do not receive the outside. Do not receive the face. Do not sort of warmly welcome one person on the basis of their face and reject someone else on the basis of their face. We are to be people who accept everyone. And so the example becomes... Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, what James is saying here is something which is Honest and difficult and inescapable all at the same time. So, we do make lightning fast decisions about people on the basis of their appearance. We do all the time, inescapably. So, for example, when I'm teaching at TBS, downtown Toronto, uh, there is an eclectic group of people from all walks of life in that downtown corridor. And so my comfort level, when I'm walking around there, goes up on the basis of the appearance of the person who's walking around me or towards me. So we make very quick judgments. In some ways, that's actually almost necessary for survival. So we make quick judgments on the basis of comfort, depending on how someone is dressed and how they're comporting themselves. That's fine at one level. There are also contextually specific situations. So, as you know, uh, I I don't normally dress like this when I'm preaching. usually dress slightly worse. Uh, So, so this is is the the dressed-up version of the man in fine clothes coming in. Uh, Probably you would be right to be offended 
if I was officiating a funeral for someone that you loved and I, and I showed up like this. So there are, there are fine culturally contextual situations in which there are sort of social rules of normative dress, and that's fine. Okay? Um, there's been a number of, of campfire devotionals where I've given where I would have dressed very similar to this, or actually probably exactly like this, depending on uh, whether or not it was in the last 15 years or so. Uh, so there are places where it's, it's fine, we recognize that. Okay? We, we, can dress, we dress differently for different occasions. The point that's being made here, though, is this. There is an evil human tendency to treat people better if we think that, the, that there are odds of us personally benefiting from that relationship. So, if a known billionaire shows up here on a Sunday morning, and we know that they've just moved to Guelph, and they're looking for a church, and they want to tithe. Why are you laughing? <laughs> I was going to say, obviously, that wouldn't make any difference to any of us whatsoever, except that we know that it would. Someone can show up walking in or having caught the bus like this, and I trust that at this stage in Crestwick's history, we wouldn't be rude to them and turn them away at the door. But would we be nearly as happy to have that individual here as, as the known billionaire looking for a church? Honestly. One of the ways you can tell is, is how much time and effort you spend trying to greet new people who show up who don't look like they're billionaires. Someone shows up in a Rolls Royce. Someone shows up who, who we know is, is, a, is a professional athlete. Maybe just retired. It's hard to live in Guelph as a professional athlete, I would assume. Uh, but uh, we're attracted to the face. We're attracted to externals. And although hopefully we wouldn't say to a poor person, you sit here by my feet, we're also probably just not as likely to take any special notice of them whatsoever as we would for the demonstrably obvious rich and wealthy and famous person. A few years ago now, uh, Robin Williams was filming uh, a movie in Toronto. There's certain scenes downtown Toronto. And so apparently he'd been told, you, know, you, should, you should attend. There's this preacher at Jarvis Street Baptist. That's the church that's connected with Toronto Baptist Seminary. You should go, to, you should go and hear this guy preach, Jarvis. And so for a couple Sundays... Robin Williams showed up at Jarvis Street Baptist Church. And this, you know, all of a sudden becomes the, the gossip that's going around in our, our evangelical circles. And I, I, I never forget, I'll never forget uh, being at a, at a meeting with some pastors and um, a guy there from the East Coast, a little quirky, and, uh, and someone mentions, you know, um, yeah, I hear, I hear Robin Williams has been, has been going to Jarvis Street. And he says, yes, God's there every week. God's there. And we care that an actor's going? The, glor- the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, is with his people. 
We care about a bank account. We care about someone's clothes. We care about someone's social status. God's there every week. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't receive the face. Don't discriminate on the basis of someone's clothes. Don't discriminate on the basis of someone's socioeconomic standing. If you do, you have become judges with evil thoughts. That's what the text says. In other words, it is evil to analyze and classify people like that. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Now, another reason that favoritism, this type of favoritism is so wrong is so offensive, is that it actually runs precisely in the opposite direction from how God usually acts in the world. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. Now, this is not a sort of reverse discrimination. Uh, God does, in the Old Testament, we see this, God does bless people with wealth. Um, Paul says there aren't many who are called who are rich and intelligent and all the rest, but there are some. Okay? So this isn't sort of reverse discrimination, but there is this pattern built up, particularly in the Old Testament prophets, where The rich are rich because they're robbing and stealing and exploiting and oppressing people and using legal loopholes to get their way. They just bribe the judges. They can afford the best lawyers. I mean, make, listen, there's a sense in which, theoretically, our judicial system is blind. But the rich afford the best lawyers. O.J. Simpson was not using publicly funded defense attorneys. The rich have an absolute unfair advantage in our legal system simply on the basis of being able to afford better counsel. Now, maybe that's the way it ought to be, but but that that is nevertheless a fact. And so the same is true in the Old Testament. It's always been true in every, every judicial system. Money talks. And so the rich were getting rich by exploiting workers. They, then the, when there was any prosecution, they'd always win the case. They always had the, the better arguments, the better lawyers, and then they just bribed the judges if they had to. So the poor in the Old Testament prophets are the ones who are poor, and they're righteous. That is, they're being ground down by an oppressing system, and the reason they're suffering is that they won't play by those rules. They're actually righteous people trying to do what's right before God. So the Old Testament prophecy becomes this bit of identification between the poor and the righteous, which then follows through with some of the New Testament teaching as well. So God has chosen the poor, the righteous, to be rich in faith. Now, actually, honestly, what's more impressive? Someone who has a lot of money or someone who has a lot of faith? What's more impressive? Well, as much as we're actually impressed by the former, it's the latter. You just might not know how much faith someone has. You you just might not know how close that person's rock with God is, how how they persevere through all sorts of difficult circumstances that you don't know about. You just don't know what's going on inside of that person. You have no idea in God's sight who the rich people even are, which is why we shouldn't judge by the face. You can be wildly famous and successful in this world and be poor in God's sight. 
Or you can have nothing of the world's goods and be rich in God's sight. So who, so who are we to judge? It is evil to receive the face. God has chosen the poor to be rich in what matters, to be rich in faith, and also to receive a kingdom. Look, if you want to be sort of sycophantic and and, and try to like cozy up to the people who will advantage you in, in the long run, don't cozy up to the people who are going to lose their temporal wealth in death. Cozy up to the people who are going to receive an eternal kingdom. Those are the ones who are actually rich. Our mistake is that we, we don't recognize who's rich. Is it, the, is it the person with lots of money that they can't possibly keep and that they might lose depending on inflation and, and, and economy? Or is it the person who receives a kingdom? My goodness, why be impressed with worldly things? That poor, wretched believer in, 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 in dirty, tattered clothes is, is chosen by God to be rich in faith, and they're receiving a kingdom. They're, they're an heir of God and a co-heir of Jesus Christ. You can't be richer than that. Everything the Father has is that. It belongs to that person. The kingdom he, that they will inherit, promised, it's a promise, it's a guarantee, promised to those love him. So you're told here that these poor people who are rich in faith will receive the kingdom and they love God. Now, you probably don't want to be in that group of people who discriminates against those who love God. Now, why? Why is it that we love God? What does Paul say? We love because he first loved us. So now you're not only discriminating against people who love God, but if they love God, it's only because God loves them first. And so now you're discriminating against those whom God loves. Not only that, it's the rich who are blaspheming God and exploiting you. It's the rich who are dragging you into court. It's the rich who are persecuting. Now, this is very contextual to James, I grant. Okay. But it's, in other words, it's, it's the powerful people in the world who are oppressing the church. It's the powerful people in the world who are making laws that make a mockery of God's morality. It's, it's the powerful people in the church, or in the world, rather. It's the powerful people in the world you know, who are antithetical to what God is doing in this world. And so to sort of, again, to... to, to To show favoritism to those people is actually to favor not those who love God, but to favor those who are the enemies of God. It's to show partiality to those who are blaspheming God. It's actually to throw your lot in on the basis of external values. It's to throw your lot in with those who are in opposition to God and those whom God loves and those who love God. So don't do it. Don't receive the face. Do not show Favoritism. Now, if you really keep the royal law, James says, and and royal law here, law refers to sort of a legal code, a law code, and royal refers to a king. So this is, if you keep the law code of the king, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Now this is, this is indiscriminatory. 
doesn't matter what your neighbor's ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what their socioeconomic standing is, although likely, you know, the way we block out our neighborhoods, uh, probably the, the person next to you has roughly the same kind of socioeconomic standing that you do. Uh, but this is just... Uh, Whoever is in the community, it doesn't matter, again, what these uh, factors are, the way that we, we split out demographics. You love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's royal decree. Then you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. In other words, you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you are discriminating amongst your neighbors. You think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is the neighbor? It's anyone in need. And, and so, does that rich person with the role, I mean, Robin Williams needed Jesus. But, but, but you know, it, it's, it's fascinating that, that in that neighborhood, do you know that, that Jarvis Street, there are homeless people who show up every Sunday. No one ever talks about them. Well, well that homeless person needs Jesus just as much as Robin Williams does. There's just no difference. There is literally no difference at all in terms of their actual needs. So you can't discriminate against your neighbors. Every one of them, no matter where they plot out in terms of the world, every one of them needs Jesus. Every one of them is also an image bearer of God. So so whether they're They're rich or poor. They are created. They are intrinsically and inherently the image bearer of God. That's how they're constitutionally designed. None of the other stuff matters. All the other stuff is is accidental and contingent. The necessary part is that they are the image bearer of God. And, 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 And fallen in sin and needing a savior. Broken and lost. And so this is again James pleading. Remember, just remember, Jesus is the Lord of glory and start assessing people that way. Who are they on the basis of their relationship with Jesus? Who, who cares if Robin Williams is funny? Like, who, who cares if he makes a lot of money by making people laugh? Like, like, who cares? Who cares if someone has millions of dollars because they're, they're good at you know, hitting a ball? Like, like who cares? Who cares if someone has fallen through the cracks and doesn't have a roof over their head? Since when did, did, did having a roof over your head become an arbiter of value or meaning or purpose or significance or worth? Don't discriminate amongst your neighbors. Because the law is a unity. So, you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder. You're a lawbreaker. You go, well, thank goodness I haven't committed murder. But what about favoritism? What about receiving the face? If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the law, the whole law, it stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, there's a sense in which that hardly seems fair. How can you be guilty of breaking all of the law if you keep most of the commandments, but then just, just in, in a bad moment show some favoritism to someone on the basis of externals? I mean, how, how, do, how is that fair? 
probably the best analogy of this, and, and any really good analogy is not original to me. I, I don't recall where I heard this, uh, or where I read it, rather. But probably a really good analogy is to think of the law like uh, a pane of glass. You know, you, as a little kid, you, hoping to grow up to be rich and famous, incidentally, uh, hit a baseball over your fence and, sh- and break your neighbor's window. You can't go up to your neighbor and thoughtfully say, well, you know, I didn't break all of it. I just broke that spot the size of the ball that went through. So don't say I broke your window. I just broke that little component part of it. Some things are unities. You break, you put a ball through a window, the whole window is broken. And so that's like the law. You break one part of the law, you broke the whole thing. It's like you threw a ball through the window. Yes, there are still, there's still glass in the frame, but the window is broken. Uh, you can you know, go up to a, a famous piece of art, you know, and, and you can sort of just take a knife and slash through it. And then you can't say, well, I didn't really damage all of it. I just damaged this one really thin swath. No, it's, it's all or nothing. You've, you've damaged the art. You've damaged the whole picture through that act of vandalism, even though the knife only runs through a little bit of it. That's like the law. You, you violate the law at any point, and you've defaced or broken all of it. So, favoritism is breaking the law. Now, Probably, if that's true, most of us are lawbreakers. Unless you never show favoritism on the basis of externals or never have. In which case, you're one of the few people like me of whom that's true. But for most of us, likely at some point, there has been something which has violated the law of God. At some point. So what do we do? Well, all of a sudden, you can't claim legal standing. You don't come to God and say, well, look how well I've behaved. Look at how well I've maintained your law. I, in fact, I, I've never broken any of it. I've just polished it up. No, you, you, you stand before God as a lawbreaker. It's what you are. So what you need is you need to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. So in word and in deed... You, you act as if there's a law that gives you freedom. Well, what, what law gives freedom? Well, part of the whole system that God has designed is that we break the law, but Christ fulfills it. So, so that Christ doesn't actually violate any of God's standards at, at all, not just in terms of external behavior, but in terms of thought, in terms of word, in terms of motivation. It, it's, just, it's, it's incredible how anyone can do that. It is, I think for us as sinners, it is literally unimaginable how that's possible. But Jesus has done it. He, at every point, he has perfectly upheld and maintained and fulfilled the law of God. But then he is willing to take our punishment upon himself on the cross. He pays our legal debt. He pays our legal fine. He dies our death for us, satisfying the wrath and punishment 
of God that belongs to us. And so built into the decrees of God is a category of atonement where someone can substitute themselves in your place and take your penalty and your guilt. Now, they need to be perfect. They can't die for their own sin. They can't have their own debtor penalty. But where you have a perfect person who also has infinite capacity, where do you find a person? Where do you find a human being who's ever going to have infinite capacity? Well, the only one who has infinite capacity is God. But the only one who could pay for human sin would be a human being. And so what you need is you need someone who is both God and man. And what we have is the Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus, the glory of God. And so he dies as a substitute to pay the penalty for the sins of the people. And you embrace that. And what you do in faith and as believers in him is that you are recognizing your need, not of law, but of mercy. And so then, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, If you forgive others their sins against you, so your Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins against you, neither will you be forgiven. You judge people without mercy, you will not receive mercy. Why? Because it's a fundamental denial of the gospel. Your whole standing is only, uh, you're only able to have the standing that you have on the basis of mercy. And if that's the fundamental orientation of your life, that you have received mercy rather than legalistic judgment, then that ought to be how you treat your neighbor, with mercy. Because if there's no mercy, then you're done. That You've already conceded that when you put your faith in Jesus. The reason you go to Jesus is, is you need mercy. Well, so does your neighbor. Whether they're rich or poor. And so, In the assembly of God's people, where everyone simply stands in need of the exact same thing, which is the undeserved grace and mercy of God, where every one of us who who professes faith in Jesus acknowledges tacitly, even in that profession, we need mercy. How can we acknowledge that then fail to be merciful to other people on the basis of their clothes? On the basis of the car that they show up in, or the bus that they rode, or the bike, or their feet if they walked. No, extend mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It is also worth saying this. The Lord of glory... When he was on earth, how impressive was he in terms of material goods? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Do you realize that when we discriminate against the poor, what we're doing is we are demonstrating literally that we would have rejected Jesus too. Because Jesus had all of the marks of that poverty. 
And so if you say to the poor person, the person, did you just sit over here? If Jesus had walked in with the glory veiled in, the, in his incarnate flesh, that's how you would have, he didn't come in as a rich person. He didn't come in as, as someone who was sort of in the elite stratosphere of society. He came in as someone who, who didn't have a place to lay his head. And, and, and so if there's that kind of discrimination, then, then what you're really doing is you're turning Jesus away. Jesus didn't show up in fancy clothes. Good chance he showed up in jeans. You turn people away on the basis of those externals, you're, you're literally turning away Jesus. The exact same sort of person that you would have turned away. That's sobering. However, the glory of it is that Jesus receives everyone. And and Jesus is just a little bit more important than any of us. And he's willing to receive us. King of kings and Lord of lords, not too important to receive a homeless person. King of kings and Lord of lords, not too important not to wash the feet of his disciples. The, the, The Shekinah glory of God in human form, healing lepers and outcasts and the poor and the beggars. How dare his people be different in that way? No, the glory is that Jesus receives us. Rich or poor. Anyone who has faith. Because at the cross, there are no sociological demographics. At the cross, before Jesus, they didn't, they, all the ways we divide people, they, those categorizations, they just don't matter at all. At the cross, it's, us as a sinner before the Son of God, our Savior, and that's it. And nothing else matters. And communion is a reminder of that. You know, it's just sort of interesting, like, like today, and you also have to recognize too, like, like, like just looking around, fashion conventions do change, right? which is why you should get one set of clothes and keep them forever. Uh, fashion conventions do arbitrarily change. But you realize, I'm not sure there's a single person in this room who is dressed appropriately for what would have been expected culturally in church 60 years ago. Not, not a single person. How dare you? No, the reality is, regardless of how you're dressed today, do you know that God loves you? It's an amazing thing. That, that you don't come to Jesus because you're dressed well enough. You don't come to Jesus because you have a certain amount of money. You don't come to Jesus because there's a certain amount of sociological cachet that you have. You just come to Jesus, and he receives you. And communion is one of those places, too, where we say, and we all come to Jesus together, which means we don't discriminate and show favoritism. Because everyone is accepted only on the same basis. And that basis is the mercy and grace of God.